welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Well, that's really exciting and thrilling to hear the bells, even after Christmas and New Year's. Thank you, Gemma Bell and the Bell Choir, very much. I'd like to turn to our internet audience and welcome you to the Hayward Seventh-day Adventist Church worship service today. And this is a worship service with the 1888 message dynamic. Welcome. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you today that this is the Sabbath in which your presence comes very close and near to us, and especially at this house of worship. And we know that your spirit is everywhere throughout the world to all of our listeners who are worshiping with us today, too. May your Holy Spirit give us discernment in the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Surely at some time in your life, you have work for wages. You may even know what it is to toil all day long in a hot sun until every muscle and bone in your body aches with tiredness. And all of the while, you kept thinking about the wage that your employer was promising you, and you knew that you deserved every cent and probably more. The point is that what your employer paid you was not a gift, but it was a debt that he owed you, because a wage is something that is paid, after all, you earned it. Well, this simple observation, I think, unlocks one of the profound truths of the Bible, that God says to us that he is not an employer. He pays no one wages. We read in Romans chapter 11, and verses 5 and 6, that there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So now we see here that grace is just the opposite of works, don't we? Now suppose that you do not work for your employer at all. He owes you not one cent, correct? And suppose that in addition to the fact that you have done nothing to deserve anything from him, you have actually wronged him. Perhaps you have stolen property from him. Well, he could be angry with you, couldn't he, if he chooses to. But then suppose that he shows a kindness to you by freely giving you a brand new Mercedes. In spite of all of the evil that you have done to him, wouldn't you say that such a gift like that would be grace? That would be grace, wouldn't it? Now, let us suppose that we think of Christ as our employer. Does he award salvation and eternal life as wages to those who work hard to earn them? Or does he give salvation freely as grace to people who don't deserve it at all? And if he does do that, 
how can he be fair if he doesn't save everybody alike? And further, if he does save people by grace alone, what is the point of anyone needing a change of heart? People ask that same question, you know, in the Apostle Paul's day in Romans chapter 3 and verse 8, why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? Now, those are some of the problems that we would like to find answers to. If good people can earn salvation, do they not have every right to be proud of themselves? And if nobody can earn it, why should anyone even want to be good? Well, about 1900 B.C., the Lord called a man out of Babylon out of Ur of the Chaldees, to become an example of salvation by grace. And Paul calls Abraham the father of all who have faith. In other words, all who believe in Christ are Abraham's spiritual children. And when the apostle Paul turned the world upside down with his teaching, it was Abraham whom he put forward as proof of his gospel. Abraham's experience in finding salvation is a perfect example of how we too may find it. Now, did Abraham earn salvation, or was he simply saved by the grace of God? And Paul asks this in Romans 4 and verse 1, what shall we say then of Abraham, the father of our race? What was his experience? If he was put right with God by the things he did, he would have something to boast about, but not in God's sight. The scripture says Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. A person who works is paid his wages, but they are not regarded as a gift. They are something that he has earned. But the person who depends on his faith, not on his deeds, and who believes in the God who declares the guilty to be innocent, it is his faith that God takes into account in order to put him right with himself. And then Romans 3.24, by the free gift of God's grace, all are put right with him through Christ Jesus, who sets them free. Now, if God saved Abraham, simply by his grace, because Abraham believed, then it follows that you and I are saved in exactly the same way. And shocking as it may seem to us, who think our age is especially enlightened, why the gospel was preached to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, 1900 B.C., and uh, the gospel was preached to Abraham just as it is preached to us today. God requires no more from us today than he required from Abraham. He was always, he's always had only one way of saving women and men. It's through the same kind of faith that Abraham exercised. And now, this is still a new idea to mankind nearly 4,000 years later because you don't see grace... In the business world, you don't see grace in our political world today unless someone has, happens to have learned it, maybe from Jesus Christ, but you don't get anything free in the world today, whether it be a house 
or a piece of property or a car. Nobody even brings you food for free, hardly. You have to earn everything that you put into your mouth. The world operates strictly on the principle of works. You get what you earn. And you don't, if you don't work, you don't get anything. That's the operational principle of the world today. And so completely then are people given over to this idea of works that they naturally imagine that God operates on the same plan. And they suppose they need to do something in order to earn salvation from him. They must give him something. They treat God as though he was a business owner. You never feel ashamed of yourself when you go to a retailer and you buy something. Uh, You have your money, you pay it, uh, and take what you have bought. You walk out proud and happy. You may even feel that you've done the business person a favor, for you know that he's made at least some profit on what you sold him. But when someone gives you something freely as an act of grace, you don't know how you ought to feel or act. He has done you a favor, and it makes you feel humble. And in some way, you sense that you owe a debt to him. Well, it's our nature to think that God keeps a store and that he sells salvation to those who will pay him with their goodness. And so, in other words, they like to make bargains with God, to feel like they have something that they can give back to God. Their works, maybe, their sacrifice, their devotion, because it makes them feel just a little proud. They consider themselves somewhat, then, on a level with Him. They give Him something, and they receive something from Him. Well, if Abraham had worked for his salvation, he probably would have felt the same way. This is the feeling, I think, that Satan wanted Adam and Eve to have when he said to them in the garden, you shall be as gods, uh, because he promised, uh, or you're going to be as God. You know, that's what he promised them. Oh, how the human heart, proud heart of man has ever wanted to feel that way, to be as God. It either elevates us to the level of God himself or drags God down to our level, but either way, we end up being the big guy on top. But God pays no wages, whatever. And as he gives us by, all he gives to us is by grace, and it is a gift. And the reason is that there is really nothing that we can do to earn salvation, any more than a baby can earn the food that his parents provide to him. You know, they feed their baby by grace. They love him. That's all there is to it. And that's the reason that God saves us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, It is by grace that that ye are saved by faith. It is not of your own doing. It is God's gift. It's not a reward for work done. There is nothing for anyone to boast of, Paul says. Now, one would think that all of the people in the world would just rejoice over this kind of news with joy, but most people reject it. Why? Well, they're too proud. They're too proud to to come to God humbly and to hold out both of their hands in faith to receive from Him, to receive the grace from God. 
In order to receive the grace from God, we must humble our proud hearts, acknowledge we are nothing, that we have nothing, that we deserve nothing, that he gives everything. And Jesus says, as an illustration of this in Matthew 6, verse 26, he says, look at the birds up there in the air. They do not sow and they do not reap and they don't store in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That, you know what? The birds, they live by grace, don't they? And yet people mock the idea of grace, saying, grace, psh, that's for the birds. Does the Lord hold a court session every day to find out which one of those birds deserve my grace? Does he? Does he ask each one of them, have you been a good bird today? If so, I'm going to feed you, and if you've been a bad bird, I won't feed you. No, God does not inquire of a person, uh, has he been good, has she been good, in order to determine whether or not he will give them grace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 45, Your Father which is in heaven, he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And you know what? That is grace. All of us receive it. We all receive grace. A thoughtful writer has said this in the book Steps to Christ, page 68, that in the matchless gift of his Son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace, as real as the air which circulates around the globe. You know, if the Lord has surrounded us with grace as abundant as, abundant as the air that we breathe, surely there is enough grace for every one of us, every one of us on this earth. In fact, Paul says, my, uh, Paul says of God, my grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I wonder, can you imagine a little mouse being in a corn silo and fearing that it might die of famine? The owner could say, cheer up, little mouse. My corn is sufficient for you. Or can you imagine a man who is standing on a mountain uh, height, afraid to fill his lungs with the wonderful air for fear there might not be enough air to breathe. You know, the mountain would say, breathe your fill, man. My air is sufficient for you. And there are many people who are living in the world who in their hearts want to be right with God, but they've been taught to believe in the idea that separates them from God and that he restricts his grace to those who think they find it easy to obey him but many know that they have an evil heart that just loves to do wrong, and so they imagine that God is angry with them or that he's turned away from them. But if the sunshine and the rain fall alike on the evil and on the good, surely anyone can see that God's grace comes likewise to every man, woman, and child on the earth. Have you done bad things? Do you feel yourself unworthy of the kindness of God? 
you are the very person to whom God gives his wonderful grace. There's nothing that you can do to earn it any more than you can earn sun to shine upon you or the rain to fall upon your garden. You simply receive it with thankfulness. And this thankful receiving is what the Bible calls faith. If a person refuses to receive it, or if a person is not thankful for it, then he's guilty of a sin which is called unbelief, which literally is non-faith, or more pointedly, it is active disbelief. And the New Testament is full of the story of God's grace. It mentions God's grace 150 times. Now, to think that God loves bad people and blesses undeserving sinners, why, this was an idea that literally turned the ancient world upside down in the days of the apostles. They, they showed how men have lived in rebellion and hatred of God, that they just twisted and perverted God's truth. You can read about this in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 5. They worship animals. They worshiped idols. They defiled the image of God in their own bodies through sexual lust, and they blasphemed the holy name of God. They even despised God, who was very patient and kind to them, and went so far as even to slay his own son upon the cross, and yet God gives them his grace and calls them to repentance. He doesn't wait for the lost sinners to go in search of him because he knows that they could never find him, and so he goes in search for them, and that is grace. The Bible says that we are called by his grace. We have believed through his grace. His grace enables us to believe. We are justified, forgiven of sins by grace. We're saved by His grace. We know that we are sons and daughters of God and members of the royal family because we stand in grace. And having begun to believe, we grow in grace. Now, how has this gift of grace come to us? In 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now you ask any rich man who, uh, what frightens you the most, has all of the power of money, what frightens you the most? And he's going to tell you it's a fear of becoming poor. But Jesus voluntarily chooses to become poor and give up his riches for us. That's grace. That is grace. Now, to appreciate this grace of God that has been revealed to us in Christ, that is what true religion is all about, to appreciate that grace. But there's also a false religion that I think has deceived almost the whole world, and it could even bear the label of so-called Christian, and it teaches us, it teaches people, well, you are naturally good. You have some goodness in you, 
that you can save yourself, or at least help out a lot towards saving yourself in the end. And it's the kind of religion that includes the idea you need to make a good bargain with God that will put man on a level with God. And whether it professes to be Christian or not, this kind of religion has its roots intertwined with heathenism because it is nothing more than salvation by works. Both of these religions, the true one and the counterfeit, they all had their beginning back in the Garden of Eden because when our first parents sinned, they lost their beautiful clothing of holiness that had covered them. And for the first time, we're told they felt naked, and of course, uh, they were ashamed. And then they immediately thought that they could do something about it themselves. So here was the beginning of the religion of salvation by works. They covered themselves with what? Fig leaves, it says. They sewed the fig leaves together and they made themselves coverings in Genesis 3, verse 7. That's the beginning of salvation by works. That was the first attempt ever made to atone for sin by man's own works of righteousness. Now, all of our attempts to keep God's law on our own, our own works of righteousness, are just like those coverings of the fig leaves. We are an unclean thing, according to Isaiah 64, 6, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Now, could God accept those fig leaves on Adam and Eve? No. He must himself clothe the nakedness of poor Adam and Eve. As for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics, it says, or coats of skin, and clothed them. Have you ever wondered where the Lord found those skins? Well, there was only one way. He had to slay an innocent animal whose death pointed forward to the death of the great Lamb of God on the cross yet to come. And those garments were the work of God himself, not man. You see, only God can clothe us. Only God can clothe us. And the garments are those of Christ's righteousness, and they cost the blood of the Son of God. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission or dismissal of sin. Hebrews 9, verse 22. What is the purpose of this gift of God's grace? Is it to excuse us so that we can go on to live a life of sin and selfishness and self-centeredness? Is that the purpose? No. We see what the grace of God does for us. In the scriptures, it says the grace of God has dawned upon the world with healing for all mankind, and by it we are disciplined to renounce godless ways and worldly desires and to live a life of temperance, honesty, and godliness in the present age, looking forward to the happy fulfillment of our hopes when the splendor of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will appear. He it is who sacrificed himself for us to set us free from all wickedness and to make us pure people, marked out for his own, eager to do good. 
according to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, this is the work that grace accomplishes in every heart that believes. To set us free from all wickedness, to make us pure. You know, the grace of God has dawned upon all of us alike. And the changed heart is the experience of those who believe. The grace of God never permits a person to transgress the holy law of God. Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You know, to be under the law means to be under the dominion of self, to be ruled by fear and driven to evil thoughts and deeds. But the dominion is ended by the coming of grace. Now we're under a new dominion. We're under a new obligation that is imposed by a deep, heartfelt thankfulness for the grace of God that's revealed at the cross. Shall we sin, Paul says, because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not, he says. To be under the law is the same as being under the curse of the law, according to Galatians 3, 10 and 13. The curse of the law is the dominion of sin, which is a life of habitual, captive disobedience to the law. A person may want to obey, but he finds he cannot because he's a slave under the dominion of a life of habitual disobedience. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What Christ has redeemed us from is the disobedience to the law. This is made plain by verse 10 in Galatians 3. Cursed is everyone, it says, who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But there is never any curse on the one who obeys the law. Obedience always brings a blessing. Indeed, it brings a blessing instead of a curse. Christ redeems us to a new life, a new life of true, happy obedience under under grace. You know, but Satan wants to, to make people think that under grace gives them permission for a living a life of sin. I'm saved. Glory. Hallelujah. Now I can continue sinning. What a lie. What a lie that is. God forbid, says Paul. Emancipated from sin, you become slaves of righteousness, he says in Romans 6.18. As once you yielded your bodies to the service of impurity and lawlessness, so now you must yield them to the service of righteousness, making a holy life. You know, sin actually loses its dominion. When grace is appreciated, for grace is the stronger master. It emancipates us more effectively than Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves. The Russian Tsar Alexander, he used to love to disguise himself and mingle with the people to hear what they had to say. And one night he visited the army camp and he listened to some soldiers 
And while passing a tent, he saw a young soldier sitting at a table with his head on his arm, and he was sound asleep. And the czar tiptoed to the back of the chair, and he looked over his shoulder. And there on the table before him, he saw a loaded revolver. And beside the revolver was a sheet of paper. It had a long list of gambling debts. And after seeing the total, the czar noted a sentence below the list of gambling debts which said, who can pay so much? And suddenly the czar understood the situation. And the young officer had gambled away all that he had had, and he was about to take his own life for fear of not being able to meet all of his debts. And then the czar took up his pen, and below the young soldier's question, he wrote the words, I, Alexander, the czar of Russia, can pay the debts. And quietly he turned away, and he went home. And the next morning, the young officer woke up, and immediately he took a hold of his revolver when suddenly he saw the writing on his letter that he had not put there. And he read the words of the czar, and in amazement, he dropped the revolver. And at that moment, a messenger came to his tent with a bag of money from the czar. The young soldier's debt was paid, and his life was spared. That was grace. Same grace comes to you from God. He's paid your debts in full. You are no longer deserving of the wages of eternal death. Jesus paid that debt for you. Appreciate it, and that agape love will change your heart and reconcile you to him. That's our prayer in the Savior's name. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.